Thank you so much, worship team. Were you blessed? I was. Incredible. Thank you so much for letting God use you all. You know, it might be fairly safe and secure where you live your faith out daily. In other words, nobody bothers you. Nobody hassles you. But I assure you that there are places in this world when you are a believer that it's not that way at all. There are many believers throughout this world that endure indescribable shame and suffering for their faith in God. It could be where they learn. It could be where they live. It could be where they play. It could be the place where they practice their craft. It could be any of these places. So when we hear about these things, sometimes because we're not directly involved or touched by it, we probably seem to, th- seem to think that this topic doesn't really concern us. But it really does. But it really does. Because in some subtle way, over time, we see that there's a cost for standing for the Lord. In some cases, it's a very small cost. But in other cases, it's a very large cost. So the question comes up, what would you and I do when the heat of persecution is raised around us? What will we do? Would we, compr- would we cave in and compromise or would we remain steadfast in our faith? Well, some of us might sit out there and say, well, that all depends. It depends on how high the cost uh, may be. But suppose that the cost for standing for God, that it might cost you your life. Now, I don't know of any higher cost than some of that, but it would cost plenty. I'm sure. And that's why the book of Daniel is so precious to us. Because the book of Daniel gives us encouragement in moments just like that. When we feel the heat, when we feel the pressure, when we feel that the walls are closing in, when we feel the darkness is beginning, is ready to swallow us up, that we would want to give in to them and walk away from the Lord. Well, Daniel and his friends didn't do that. And we're so glad they didn't. And so turn with me back to the book of Daniel. We'll begin our study in chapter 3 this time. Chapter 3. Now let's catch up a little bit because some have been away. Some perhaps have missed a week or two. And so we're catching up. And so basically our story in these first few chapters of Daniel has involved Daniel and his three friends. They were Jewish uh, young men that were captured and sent as captive to Babylon to be immersed and to embrace the Babylonian culture and gods. The hope of the king, the hope of the administration was that they would become so Babylonian that they would just forget about their God and they would become Babylonians in, and for all intents and purposes. And they would serve the king in any capacity, such as governing the people that were in his kingdom. From the very beginning, though, these three men and Daniel made a strong stand for God. Uh, serving but refusing to abandon their faith. They, they were firmly fixed. They were firmly convinced. They belonged to God and they would stand for God. Their faith was constantly being challenged, though. All the time. Every time they turned around, there was some kind of test that would, would come up and they would, their faith would be challenged and they would be called to make a decision to follow God or to follow the way of the world or to follow the way of Babylon. And as we catch up to them in chapter 3, we find that it's roughly about 20 years after the promotions that were given in chapter 2. How do we know that it was? 
Well, perhaps it took that long for them to build the statue that they took. But scholars estimate that it was roughly about, give or take, about 20 years later. So these are no longer teenagers. <laughs> these guys are no longer teenagers. These men are probably in their early 30s and their mid-30s. And they've been serving the king a good long time now at this point in time. And now comes the test. Now comes the test. And this should point up very simply to us a lesson that we should all learn. Is that longevity does not, is no guarantee for peace and harmony. Just because you've been working at some place for a long time. And you think that everybody knows that you're a Christian. They'll leave you alone. You would think after 20 years. No way. You're still going to be challenged. I'm going to be challenged. You're going to be challenged. And so it's important that we accept the fact that the challenges because of our faith can come at any time of our lives. And so now it's the time for these three young men. And so as we jump into this, we find, first of all, in verses 1 to 15, the test of faith, the testing of their faith. Now, what did this involve? It involved some commands that were given by Nebuchadnezzar. Where were these commands? Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, it says. Now, if you convert this, it comes out to roughly about 27.5 meters tall and about 2.7 meters wide. This was no small statue. This is not something that fits in your garage, okay, or in your living room. This is much bigger than that. And they set it up on the plains of Dura. Now, you might say you have Dura. What does that mean? Okay, Dura was this flat area. And the reason that it was chosen was because something that big could be seen for miles around. It was unobstructed. And so this was the perfect place to have this. And so we find that uh, Nebuchadnezzar erected this statue and uh, that he, he, he invited all of the uh, levels of uh, government to come to the dedication. This is found in verses 2 to 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, at first you say to yourself, well, so far, so good. He has this monster statue. He invites all of the people close to him, you know, close friends, to come and admire this thing. But there was a hidden motive behind this. What was the hidden motive? Well, you have to just look at verse 4 to 6. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image. You are to fall down and worship the golden image. For whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. What was the uh, motive? What was the driving force? It was so they would come and worship the image. You see? 
And so this was not a mere, oh, come see what I just bought. Don't, it was not a mere, come and see what I added to my collection. It was not one of those kind of things. It was where Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to come and actually bow down to this statue, to worship it, to ascribe to it deity. And so that's the key, is this idea of worshiping idols, worshiping something other than God. The word worship appears in this chapter 11 times. It's as if God was trying to say, get the point. Get the point? He says not to worship this statue, this idol. And so this is exactly what um, Nebuchadnezzar had in mind. And then if you look at verse 7, you see the obedience of the people. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And so everybody bowed down immediately. Everybody just gave in. Everybody just did what they were told. And they did it, quote, religiously, as it were. They were worshiping the idol. And so not everybody did, because we're told that the three Jewish young men did not do that. And how do we know that? Because charges were made against them. Look at verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Now, it's interesting. These Chaldeans, who were they? They were the advisors to the king. They were part of the group of magicians and conjurers and advisors to the king. And so this was the very same group that back in chapter 1, the king wanted to have killed. He said, you guys can't tell me what my dream is. Get rid of you all. Why am I paying your bills? Why am I housing you? Why am I clothing you? You're no good to me. Kill them all. But it was because Daniel got the dream and interpreted the dream that they were saved. You see? But here they were. They turned around and they accused the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, Oh, king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and what? Worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Okay? And so uh, this is what they were telling the king. There are certain Jews among you who have appointed over you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And so this is a pretty serious charge. This is really a serious charge. They're asking for their heads. They're saying to the king, essentially, king, they disregard you. They disrespect you. You're going to lose face if you don't do something about these guys. You know, that's what they were trying to do. They were daring the king to do something against uh, these who would not bow down. And so this all of these were serious charges that were being brought against God's people. Well, the king, of course, had to respond, and he did. How did he respond? Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want you to notice that Nebuchadnezzar had an anger problem. 
It's throughout. Wherever you see a description of this guy is angry. He's one of these guys that just can't control himself. And so he has an anger problem. So he reacts out of anger again. And so he calls them forth. And he says, these men were brought before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Then he does something very strange. Look at verse 15. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lair, trigon, the psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made. Very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? What was happening here? Nebuchadnezzar was giving them a chance to change their mind. And he was basically, you know, he didn't give this option to anybody else. Anybody else who didn't bow down immediately was thrown into the fire. But he gave this chance to the, to the three Jewish men. Now, why is that? Perhaps, perhaps, it was because they had served him so well for 20 years. They had been faithful civil servants. Whatever the king asked them to do, and if it was right, they were willing to do it. Good help is hard to find. <laughs> and so he found it in these three guys. And he wasn't going to just give it up so easily. So he turned around. He said, look, guys, look, just bow down and it's over. Everything will be okay." And so he was trying to change their minds. He was trying to change their minds. Now, as we see, this basic story thus far involves three major characters, right? Nebuchadnezzar, the officials, and also the three Hebrew uh, uh, young men. Okay. And so it behooves us to look at their hearts, to look at their what was going on in their minds. What was causing all of this? Well, if you look at the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar, it's pretty obvious that there might have been some pride involved here. How do we know the dream that Daniel had interpreted and given back to King Nebuchadnezzar said that there would be an empire and the first empire would be his, the Babylonian. And it was characterized by gold. But look what he did. He didn't make just the head overlaid with gold. He made the whole statue overlaid with gold. He was really trying to drive home the point. His empire was the greatest. His empire was the greatest. And he was the greatest. And he was worthy to be worshipped. This is what he was trying to do. There was so much pride in him. And so he wanted people to worship the statue. In other words, to vicariously worship him. That was what was going on in his heart. What was going on in the heart of the people? Well, in verse 7... The people just bowed down. It was like autopilot. No problem. I heard the sound. Boom. <laughs> you know, they didn't even wait for the chorus. Boom. <laughs> you know, they just went down because they didn't want to be accused of not bowing down. And so they went down immediately. And so idols to them were a way of worship. They were a way of, they were a deity that they could live with. Idols are a substitute for God. 
there is anything that substitutes for God, anything that takes away our affections, anything that takes away our adoration, anything that takes away our worship from God. This is an idol. Well, what is going on in the heart of the three Jewish young men? Well, in verses in verse 12, they turned around and said, we won't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, what was the big deal to the to the, uh, the, the Jewish young men. Bowing down would have amounted to serving and worshiping others' gods, which they couldn't do, which they couldn't do. Well, pastor, where did they get that from? All you have to do is turn to Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 5. This is the start of the Ten Commandments. This is what they grew up with. This is what they came to, to um, embrace. This is what they lived by. And it says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 5, you shall, not, you, sh- you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Now, God was very specific here. There wasn't no fuzziness about what he was trying to say. God did not dress it all up with all kinds of fancy adjectives and words. He just said, you shall have no other gods. You will not worship them and you will not serve them. Full stop, as you like to say here in Singapore. Okay, that's what he did. And so these Hebrew children knew that and they knew they could not bow down to this um, to this uh, statue, this idol. Now, you might say to yourself, well, oh, pastor, you know, I took time out of my busy schedule. I could be sleeping and I'm here at church and listening to you. And what are you telling me? What are you telling me? Idolatry is live and well. Idolatry is live and well, even in this century. And it comes in many different forms, but it is still alive and well. For example, we normally think of idols as some kind of figure or some kind of uh, image or something like that that people... I grew up in a home where we worshipped idols. We had an altar in our house. And at uh, Chinese New Year time, if I wanted my red envelope, I had to go in front of the altar as a young kid. And then I would take my parents over to San Francisco, and we'd go to the big altar, the big temple, and I would help my parents to worship the idols of their choice. Idolatry is alive and well, my friend. It could be an image. It could be a figurine. It could be all kinds of things. That's one form. But also, it can actually be uh, uh, another person. It could be something that we really admire, someone that we admire. We admire them so much that we would we basically worship the ground they walk on, <laughs> okay? And so it could be an entertainment person it could be somebody that we admire for their smarts it could be somebody we could admire for their success it could be someone on the apprentice i don't know okay but the point is sometimes an idol can be a person it can be a person another form an idol can be ourselves oh now wait a minute pastor now you're getting real what do you mean that an idol can be a person We can set ourselves up as an idol because everything has to revolve around us. We are the center of the universe. 
Everything has to go our way. Everything has to be the way we want it. It has to be the way that will bless us, the way that would make us happy, the way that make us good. We can become our own idol, if you will. You see? So it comes in many different forms. It can also be an idea. It can be a myth that we um, about what is to be so important. Okay, for example, we could buy into the idol that says that we should value position, power, and prosperity among everything. And so what happens is that we set that up as an idol in our life. Everything in our life, all of our motivations, all of our drive is all geared to this idol, which comes out as a sign of power, position, and prosperity. I was also given one idol that I didn't think too much about until I came across this. I was in Dallas, Texas, and I had a chance to meet a a very um, high executive in a major international corporation. And so I, I, I first time I met him, I, I wanted to get to really know him. He was a he is a very gifted individual, and so uh, he had a big part in the success of this international corporation. And so I said, "Sir," I said, uh, "Could you tell me uh, what kind of people are you looking for to work in your company?" I guess he thought I was trying to get a job with his company. I, I don't know. But he, he looked at me for a minute, and he says, he leans over, and he says, I'm looking for people who will give us their heart and soul. Heart and soul. My goodness. You see? And so as I, as I begin to delve a little more, I says, well, what does that mean? That means that no sacrifice is too great to make for the company. No commitment is so great that you would not do it for the company. Everything was for the company. That's why they were so successful. Because people literally worshipped the company. You see? Whatever, the company said jump, they say how high. They, you know, that kind of thing. You see? They gave their heart and soul to the company. Now the question comes. Who are the idols in your life? And I don't mean American idols either. It can be any kind of idols. But who are they in your life? You see, if you have an idol in your life, you cannot worship them or serve them. You can't. That's why. Because God said so. You see. And so the test of faith can be temptation to worship different idols. Don't be fooled and think that idols is only relegated to one kind of thing. It comes in many, many different forms. Well, how did they respond? There's a testimony of faith given in verses 16 through 27. Okay, so back to Daniel chapter 4. And so we catch up to them in verses 16 through 18. And there is a deliberate response that is given. I told the first congregation, I says, if you have trouble figuring out how to answer hard questions, go read the first six chapters of the book of Daniel and listen to the answers that Daniel and his three partners give whenever they are challenged. They were masters of the response. They were masters of the response. The response was respectful, but it was brief. Okay? It's only three verses. It was only three verses. Look at verse 16. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice here, there were several things. When you look at that phrase, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. It was not them saying, we owe you no answer. We answer only to God. You know, it was not like that. Rather, it conveys the idea. It's already been made up in our minds. It's already been made up in our minds. We already know what the answer is to that. And they went on to explain what that was. And they've described it as if our God wills it, he can and will deliver us. But if he doesn't, we still cannot worship Uh, your gods or uh, worship the golden image that you have. Now, what choices did they have? What choices did they have? They had several choices. They could have caved in and compromised, okay? And so I was beginning to think about that, and I tried to put myself in their sandals. And I tried to say to myself, okay, if I was in their sandals, what would I have said? Perhaps these are some of the same answers you might give. Maybe this is the rationalization. First of all, everybody else is doing it. Maybe I should just do it, okay? That's that's one way you could do it. Maybe another rationalization is, this is the one I like the most. We are bowing down on the outside, but standing tall on the inside. You see? You ever ever get any of that sometimes? My kids were good for that. Yeah, I'll be you, but I'm standing up on the inside, you see? See? So maybe it was one of those responses. But this one is really, who could argue with this one? Perhaps the rationalization was this. We can do more good alive than dead. Remember, these guys were high officials in the government. There were many Jewish people who were brought to captivity. And so they could have said and rationalized in their mind, hey, with our position, we can do a whole lot of good if we're alive and working rather than dead and buried, all right? This is their rationalization. But they didn't do that. Their faith in God was deep and devout. There, you see no bargaining going on. You never saw them say to the king, king, we'll do it if you just let us do it in privacy, okay? We'll bow down in private, but we won't do it in front of everybody. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. You see, there was no bargaining that was going. There was no presumptuousness. There was no grandstanding. Perhaps they just simply walked in there, holding on to the promise that was given through Isaiah in chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. When you boil it down, folks, Faith is simply obeying and trusting the Lord for the outcome. It's obeying God and trusting him for the outcome. There's nothing fancy about faith. It is very straightforward. Warren Wiersbe, a great pastor and a great expositor of the word, said this about faith. Faith does not look for loopholes. It simply obeys God and knows that he will do what is best. (laughs) Wow. Wow. 
And that's what was motivating. That was what was was dictating the actions of these three young men. Well, there was this deliberate response, but also we find that things couldn't stand still. And so Nebuchadnezzar, with his back to the wall, he had to make a decision. He had to take action. And it resulted in death. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. There it is again. The guy has an anger problem. And his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it usually heated. Seven times more. He was really angry this time. Okay. And so he ordered up that the, the, the furnace really be fired up. Uh, then he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Now, for this reason, what reason? The fact that the heat was so great and built up so high. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This was no fluke. That fire was real. That fire was fatal, you see? And it resulted in the death of these, this uh, military escort. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abel, fell into the midst of the uh, furnace of blazing fire, still tied up, it says. So they entered into the, into the fire. But guess, and look what happens next. There was dread. There was this awe. Oh, there was this confusion, if you will, that came over Nebuchadnezzar. If you look at verses 24 and 25, then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. And he said to his officials, uh, wasn't it three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed. And walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Whoa. He was astounded. He was awestruck. He was so surprised by what he saw. And so in the midst of the fire were the three that he had put into the fire. But there was a fourth that mysteriously appeared. Now, who is this fourth figure? Well, some people thought it was an angel. Other people think it's the angel of the Lord, which would be a veiled description of Christ, you see. But whoever it was, it was God's representative to these three. God did not desert his people in the fire. He joined them. He was walking around with them. And the word there said they were loosed walking around. It means that when they went in tied up, they were in the fire. They were free to move. I don't know if they were waving to Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if they were doing high fives in there. I have no idea. But he says, I'm looking at these guys. They're not tied up. They're just walking around. Like it was just another hot day in Singapore. You know, that's what they were doing. You see, and the fourth person was the one that really got his attention because it was one who looked like a son of the gods. 
Well, he couldn't hold himself back. So Nebuchadnezzar decides to make a demand. He gives, and so he goes in verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Remember, he had an anger problem. So he says, come here. I want an answer to this. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's high officials gathered around. And saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Nor was the hair on their heads singed. Nor were their trousers damaged. Nor had the smell of fire even come upon him. Wow. This was really a miracle. This was a miracle deliverance. No doubt the fire was hot. It killed those soldiers. No doubt that the fire was raging. And no doubt everybody expected them to come out looking barbecued or something. If that, they came out, weren't touched at all. This was tremendous. Now imagine, if you will, all these officials coming around. Okay? All these officials, these eight levels of uh, government officials coming around. Imagine when they went home and... You know, somebody in their office says, how was your trip to, to uh, visit the king and his new statue? Let me tell you what I saw, what I experienced. The, sto- the stories must have been fantastic as they began to spread how God had delivered the three out of the fiery furnace. You see? And God used this deliverance as a way of giving glory to himself, promoting his name, promoting who he was, letting people know that he was out there. But all of this was started because of the faith of these three men in God. Faith in God is based on trust in God's ability and obedience to him. Found right. That's just where it starts. And that's where it ends. That's where it ends. And so we should learn from that. And then the last part is the triumph of faith. And this is found in verses 28 through 30. There was a decree that was given. And it came in the form of a praise and then also in the form of a proclamation. The praise is found in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants to put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Pretty amazing, right? That Nebuchadnezzar himself was praising this god that he delivered them. And for a king to do that was pretty amazing. And that's what exactly he did. Then he went further and he gave a decree. Look at verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Now, there's no doubt in your mind and mine that this was a miraculous deliverance. But does God always work this way? Does he always work at this level in every case? No, he doesn't. 
I consider myself having been delivered from certain things. I do. Okay? But they're not as fancy as this. Maybe perhaps I was walking down one of these streets and a big truck almost hit me. But I didn't get an angel coming by my side and swooping me up or anything like that. That would have been a great story to bring back here. Okay? But somehow, guy had poor aim. The bus missed me or whatever it was. You see? But what happens is that these kinds of deliverances are possible, and they're also not, not always uh, going to happen that way. How do I know that? Hebrews chapter 11. Those of you who have been Christians for any length of time, those of you who have read your Bibles, you know that Hebrews chapter 11 is like a living museum of all of the great saints of the Lord, and that many of them did great exploits for the Lord. In fact, if you read Hebrews chapter 11, if you started with verse 32, uh, verse 34, for example, you'll see that what happens is that they list down several names of major biblical characters who did miracle after miracle for God. It was amazing. But if you go down to verse 36, there's something that you probably didn't see. And that was in verse 36, and others, and others. Who are these others? Literally, the word and others means others of a different kind. These were not the ones, they weren't like the ones who were written above in, other ver- in the verses above. This group of people, God worked in a different way. And listen to what it says. And he says, and others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't receive everything that God had revealed to them, not in their lifetime. That isn't the way God works. If I had to categorize myself and most of the people that I know, we are part of the and others. Okay? Miracles don't always come our way. God doesn't always work in our our life through miracles. Not everyone who is sick gets healed. Okay? Not everybody who prays gets their prayers. You know? It just doesn't happen. So there is those times when there are miracle deliverances and there are times when it's not a miracle. And so it could be one of these situations here. But in this case, it was a true miracle. Now, let me close by what why did God give us these that record this for us? Romans chapter 15, verse four. And whatever has was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of of scriptures, we might have hope. (laughs) How many of you in here, don't raise your hand, but how many of you in here can use some hope right now? How many of you are feeling the heat? How many of you begin to feel the pressure about, about following God and it's really getting hot? Take, take, uh, 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 have hope. Just like these three children, God can deliver. God if you, uh, uh, God will take care of you. And so this is why God had given this to us. Persecution can come in many different forms. 
it can uh, say we better be ready to deal with it decisively. Obey the Lord and trust him with the outcome. And let me close with this particular statement. It's a real need of the hour. Today, there is a great need for a deeper level of trust in God and toughness that God's people must have. Without it, we are doomed to constantly compromise and will eventually lose our testimony and our witness. And so we have to, starting now, starting today, we have to make up our mind and follow God. Otherwise, we are doomed. We will always be caving in and compromising. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want us worshiping idols. He doesn't want us to have any other gods but him. Let's pray together and close the service. Father in heaven, we thank you, dear Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the lives of real people whom you've worked through. And Father, we pray that this will be a day of encouragement for all of us. That Father, as the heat of and the temperature of persecution rises wherever we may be. Father, we will not react, but we will respond. We will respond respectfully, but Father, firmly. We will follow you. Thank you, dear Lord. We pray for all that you have done and that you are doing in the lives of these young Hebrew men and also in our lives today and tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. After a brief moment of reflection, you're free to uh, go. And uh, there are exits on either side plus the one in the back.